Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar. And I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services. Our guest on the podcast today is Jill Schlesinger. Jill is a business analyst for CBS News and comments on the economy, investing, and personal finance for CBS television and radio programs. She also hosts the popular Jill on Money podcast and writes the nationally syndicated Jill on Money column for Tribune Media Services. Jill's first book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, was published in 2019. She has received numerous awards over her career, including an Emmy Award for her work on CBS Sunday Morning. Jill is a certified financial planner and spent 14 years as the co-owner of and chief investment officer for an independent investment advisory firm. She began her career as a self-employed options trader on the Commodities Exchange of New York following her graduation from Brown University. Jill, welcome to The Long View. Great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you here. We wanted to start out by talking about all these new investors who have been pouring into the market. I think there's a lot to like about the fact that we've got new investors moving in. But do you worry that for this new group that things just might not turn out particularly well for some of these folks? I worry about that for everybody. You know, I'm a Jew from New York. I worry about everything all the time. So <laughs> it's no no doubt that there is worry. But I worry for older investors, experienced investors, young investors, mostly because investing can be so, so emotional. And um, it can be something that really does take your breath away. And so, you know, I'm not actively worrying. I'm not losing sleep over it. And And one of the greatest things about becoming um, an investor is learning how to endure some of the the ups and the downs. You know, my dad was a trader for many years and he would say to me, you know um, why they say, you know, like you're a seasoned investor. And I said, yeah, I, you know, that means you have experience. He goes, well, you know how they season a piece of meat. You pound it with a mallet. <laughs> you have to get the pounding of a mallet to become a seasoned investor, metaphorically. Yeah. A lot of big investment firms are cautioning investors to be prepared for a period of muted returns from stocks and bonds over the next decade or so. How do you think investors should incorporate that sort of information into their plans, if at all? Um, Not at all. I just think it's nonsense Um, because we are not – okay – we're not in the business of trying to outguess when there's going to be an up market or a down market, right? We we sort of all know it's like no one really can time the market with any accuracy over time. So I don't think you should be worrying about like where the next up or down 10 or even 20% is going to be, especially if you think that's going to happen in the next year or even two years. But if you're a long-term investor, you've got more than 10 years, then I think that you just ignore it. It's a lot of noise. It really is. And it can totally take your eye off the ball. So I don't think you should be, I mean, I think it's wonderful that all these big wirehouses still think that we care what they say. And maybe some people do. I just don't. And it's almost like they're yammering away when, you know, deep down everyone knows all they want is there to be like some volatile action up or down. It creates a lot of money for them. And um, frankly, I think it's it's just a silly, silly game to play to just guess where you think the market's going. You're not going to figure it out. It's just going to go where it's going to go over the long term. What we know is you will likely make money with a diversified portfolio of low cost index funds if you save enough, stick to it over time and don't mess around. So I'm curious, you know, as as someone who is employed in media, how do you thread that needle where you, you know, want to deliver sober advice and say what you just said, but it seems like there might be some pressure potentially to sort of talk up volatility and get people scared. How have you navigated that over your career where maybe your bosses have said, oh, you know, we've really got to talk about this sexy topic that you don't necessarily think is great for end investors? Well, I am, I, I am. First of all, I have to be honest with you, like I am just not from the media world. I'm from the investment world. And so I come at it very differently. So um, what I do is I tell them exactly what I think and I won't do certain things if they think that we should do it and I don't think we should, then I'll, I usually convince them and they trust me. And that's like 
the wonderful thing about being at a place for a long time. And, you know, frankly, at CBS News, we have a very broad audience. We do not have the audience of people who want to know, you know, what is the next move going to be in markets? And what we have is an audience that wants to know, how do movements impact me? So I think I'm blessed because I work for a great organization that trusts me. So when the market falls out of bed, that I can very calmly go on the air and say, okay, this sucks. Like, this is bad. It doesn't feel good. I get it. But your job is to hold those emotions in check and really try to ride this out. And, and, you know, I think this started when I first joined CBS in the beginning of 2009. So it was still pretty bad news coming out of the financial crisis. There was a recession, the Great Recession. Markets were turning upside down. And at the time, the guy who was running the news division said to me, you know, I think you really ought to tell people like how bad it's going to get. I said, okay, tell me how bad is it going to get? I don't know. And there's a certain amount of candor that I have that it's just like, I don't know. I know that over the long term, these things do work themselves out. It was a lot easier for me to go on the air every single day in the spring of 2020 when markets were rolling over and say, we've been here before. You know what I'm going to say? And Gail King just pokes at me and she says, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say, hold on, but it's hard for some people. And I said, okay, let me tell you why you're going to hold on. And I think that people are really smart. They know if you give them context that they don't have to be reactive. And that's been a really great thing to see in our audience. As a financial educator, you know it can be tough to sell young investors on the merits of things like target date funds and broad market index funds. Have you hit on any effective ways to talk to people about the advantages of getting started with dollar cost averaging and these types of boring, but, you know, really effective building blocks? You know, I think that it's okay to allow people to dip their toes in the water of the more esoteric stuff and riskier stuff. I think that's how you learn. You know, I grew up on Wall Street. I was an options trader. I traded gold, silver, and copper options. I know what the dopamine hit feels like when you hit it, and it feels great. So what I try to explain to people is, why don't you experiment with a teeny portion of your overall? And so do the real money, use your index funds, use retirement funds, use your target date funds, get that going. Prove to me that you've earned the ability and the discipline to do that. And this is true that like kind of my mantra, like cover your big three. Tell me that you've got your emergency reserve fund of six to 12 months of your living expenses. Tell me you've paid down your consumer debt and also probably some of your good chunk of your student loan debt. And then tell me you're maximizing your retirement account. Then you want to open a fund money account. You want to buy some crypto. You want to go nutty and buy some meme stocks. Sure. But just know that the money that you put into that fund money account is the money that you would put into any fun entertainment endeavor that you would be willing to lose. So kind of speaking of that three-prong approach, which you urge people to focus on, you know, wiping out credit card debt, focus on funding their retirement accounts, building that emergency fund. Most recently, I noticed that you were telling people to really focus on the emergency fund piece. Why is that? Is there something about this particular environment that makes you think that having liquid reserves maybe more than usual would make sense? Remember the earlier comment that I always think like the worst is going to happen, that I'm a worry ward? Right. <laughs> This is this is something that is uh, sort of in my DNA, but I think there's an interesting timing issue that is helpful, and that is before we had a once-in-a-century pandemic, I would talk about an emergency reserve fund and say, you never know what's going to happen. And what I used to kind of was a nod towards was, you know, you could lose your job or, you know, something you could get injured and, you know, you'd you'd lose income for some reason and you'd want an emergency reserve fund. And I think that after going through what we've gone through in the last couple of years, I think people are more attuned to the idea that weird stuff can happen from out of the blue. And the people who have an emergency reserve fund, those that had six to 12 months of their living expenses socked away in, yes, a boring, barely interest-bearing account, they seem to be a lot calmer amid a crazy time. And even those folks who were already retired, who had even more than that one year that was set aside, maybe it was even two years, 
they were able to weather the emotional disruption that you feel when bad things happen, knowing that I don't have to go into my account, sell anything because I have to pay the electric bill. So I do think that I used to sort of say I treat all three equally. I'm nudging towards emergency reserve fund because I think that it is something that gives people great comfort and it can prevent you from doing something stupid. So I noticed that you said six to 12 months worth of living expenses. I think some people may have heard like three to six months. Maybe can you talk about how that seems so daunting for young investors, I think, like who are barely getting by and then, you know, to talk about having like a year's worth of, of income saved or cash flow needs saved. It just seems like a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that it, it may be a lot. It, it may not be necessary. And, you know, if you have two um, young people who are teachers and they are a couple and they have very consistent cash flow, um, maybe the six months is just fine right? But if you had two contract workers, you know, one gig worker who is doing, you know, graphic design and with somebody or even just alone and has inconsistent income, then I think you do have to be a little bit more careful. So the range is a range. I hate rules of thumb. Everybody knows that. I get very um, petulant when it comes to giving rules of thumb. That one is a rule of thumb because it's just easy to say, but, you know, everyone's situation is different, obviously. So if Christine has this great job, totally secure, knows that, you know, if anything bad happened, there are parents there to help you out. Yeah, maybe. But I still think it is very good practice, sort of best procedure to consider, like when you're looking at investing, is that before you start going crazy investing, you really do have to have some safety net. And, you know, the next time we go into a recession, I'm going to guess, I could be wrong, but I'm going to guess that you're not going to get rounds of stimulus and extra unemployment benefits to help you out. And so when you consider how to build a financial foundation, having an ample emergency reserve fund has to be the critical aspect of this. And it's not sexy. It's like saying, you know, like, do you know how many people at work I know who are incredibly bright people who just will not get their acts together to do their estate planning? And I cannot for the life of me figure out, do they think they're not going to die? Is this something they have secret maybe? And these um, meat and potatoes aspects of financial wherewithal and wellness, to me, I'd rather talk about that all day long than talk about investments, which I find as someone who is an investment professional from like a very small child, you know, from like learning this from the beginning, that I just find that incredibly boring. And it's actually very easy to be a good investor. Again, you just have a well-diversified portfolio. You buy index funds, you put it on autopilot and you save a bunch of money. It's not that much harder than that. You mentioned that you're a worry wart by nature. I think a worry for... Many now is inflation, which has surged over the past year. If people are concerned about higher inflation, what steps do you think they should take to protect their financial plans and their portfolios? Well, I think the first thing that's really interesting to me is that we're all now like everybody's like, oh, inflation, inflation, inflation. Now, you bring this up two years ago when we were at, you know, sub 2% inflation. And I loved it when people would tell me about their retirement plans. I'm like, well, what inflation rate did you use? Just out of curiosity. And, you know, people would say one and a half, two percent. Oh, okay, fine. Um, So I think the first thing to remember is that if you're creating a financial plan, which everybody should be, that I always plug in the higher than anticipated inflation rate and the lower than expected investment return. And then you can really start to test whether your plan holds up or not. Now, do I think that we're going to have 7% inflation for the next 30 years? No, I do not. Uh, do I think it is possible that we go from a 2% to a 7% but only get back to maybe a 2 and 3 quarters or 3%? Yeah, that I think we could be in a, a higher inflationary environment longer than anybody would like to think about. Traditionally, when you look at inflation in general, stocks do start to kind of roll over a little bit in the beginning, but they don't do so badly in an, an inflationary environment. So I still like stocks. 
I do like shortening the duration of bonds. Um, having hard assets is not a terrible thing. So having a REIT or having a little commodity fund might be a decent way to do it. But I wouldn't go crazy either. I don't think that, you know, when you're in an inflationary environment and we're seeing a surge like we are right now, I do think that the most interesting part is that we have a lot of people who've never seen inflation. And that goes for a number of people who are managing money, this is the younger people. I mean, I think it's fair to say that anyone who's under the age of 40 has never really seen any sustained inflation. And so this is really spooky to them, and I get it. But I also want to be clear that we have a Federal Reserve whose job is to maintain price stability and also full employment. And, you know, might have taken them a little bit longer than I would have liked, but they seem to be coming around to the idea that this inflationary pop is needs some attention and they're going to take care of it. It's not going to be fun and, you know, they may overshoot it, but I wouldn't go too nuts trying to prepare for 7% inflation for the next 30 years because I just don't think that's going to happen. You could throw a little I-bond money in. You could have some tips, although you're probably late to the tip market, but I-bonds are not, you know, paying a decent number right now. It's only 10 grand a year, but it's not a bad thing to just park some money there. So speaking of inflation, home prices have been inflating really rapidly in some markets, and that seems to be largely because there's kind of a supply shortage. So how would you urge home buyers to proceed in such an environment so that they're not locking in a home purchase at what in hindsight was an inflated price? You know, I think back to people who bought homes in 2005 and six, four, five, six, right? And with the housing bubble was really inflating then. And if they were buying for the long term and it made sense, it was not, it doesn't feel good to be like, oh, I just bought the top. But years later, it kind of winds its way down and uh, you're no longer buying the top. And now we have a housing price surge, which kind of tops where we were, you know, beyond that time. I guess in my heart of hearts, number one, even though I own two dwellings, I hate being an owner. So I really like to encourage people to continue to rent if they feel comfortable renting. And I also just would say that if the numbers work for you and you can do this, then great, do it. I wouldn't stretch. I mean, there's a great, in in this kind of an environment, what's great to do is to look at it from the other perspective, which is I own a home. I'd really like to downsize. I'd really like to go somewhere else. Is that an opportunity? Rolling down is a much more interesting prospect than rolling up. But, you know, if the numbers work and you're going to be in a house for a long time, then buy your house and don't worry if the prices are high right this second. And don't worry that mortgage rates are a half a point higher than they were six weeks ago. If the numbers work for you, if you're secure in your earning power, if you haven't committed too much of your money to this endeavor called buying a home, then go for it. What about pay down of a mortgage? That's sort of an evergreen question that we get, whether to pay down a mortgage or invest in the market. How would you suggest that people arrive at the answer that makes sense for them? I mean, it's so funny because I think it's one of the huge questions that I get asked all the time on the pod. I mean, I would say, Paying down mortgage and Roth conversions are my top two <laughs> questions that we get at Jill on Money. It's funny. Um, I mean, look, if you've got piles and piles of money that's sitting in cash and you're really not doing anything with it and you're not going to deplete your entire emergency reserve fund by paying off your 3.5% 30-year mortgage and there's six years left, then fine, go for it. What I think is more troubling for me is that a lot of people who are in the position of wanting to pay down their mortgages would be doing so at their own peril. And what they would be doing is they'd be soaking up and taking all the liquidity that they have. So maybe they've got a brokerage account or some money in cash, and they would be willing to just basically take that down to almost zero, pay down the mortgage, and then they leave themselves with very little emergency reserve. And this is often a question I'll get asked by people who are contemplating retirement a few years out from retirement. And I say, whoa, 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 before you just take all that gorgeous liquidity that's sitting there, all that money, you know, you have to understand that in five years, paying down the mortgage may feel good today. But if something bad happens, now you're forced to then invade a retirement account and pay taxes when you may not want to. And so I think it's really case by case. 
generally speaking, it's not something that I love that most people would do. But if you are fortunate enough to be in a position where it's really not going to undo any of the great planning you have already sort of accomplished and you can take the money and say, oh, you know what? I was lucky or I got a windfall and I can use it. And it may not be financially the smartest move because I I do understand. I mean, I wrote a whole book about the dumb things smart people do with their money. And I do understand the emotions that surround the idea of carrying debt. But I would just caution people that if you are going to be depleting money that you may need as a cushion in the future, it's something I would be very careful about doing. Jill, you referenced people retiring and earlier on you talked about this kind of seasoning that we get as investors, like getting hit by a mallet and how we tend to get more comfortable with risk. For many of us, the older we get, the longer we've been doing this, we know that, yeah, stocks go down, then they come back up. So I guess a question is for people getting close to retirement, does it concern you? You mentioned you're concerned about investors at all life stages. Are you concerned about like complacency about risk and equity market risk among older adults who are maybe thinking about retiring within the next couple of years? Yeah, I just read that headline. I think it was in the journal about older Americans carrying too much risk into retirement and too many, you know, holding stocks. And I mean, look, it totally depends on your comfort level. So if you're complacent, this is obviously a problem. I don't really encounter this. I don't find that most people are complacent. I mostly find that people don't really understand how bonds work and are scared because they hear in the press like, oh my God, bonds are the worst investment to own right now because it's a rising interest rate cycle. And so they're scared of bonds. But, you know, listen, let's say I'm retiring, right? So, you know, I'm in my late 50s, early 60s, and my partner and I are going to retire. And, you know, we've got a portfolio that's uh, 80% risky stuff and 20% less risky stuff. Now, I think that that would be more risk than I personally would want to carry. But if I'm comfortable with a risk and if maybe I have pension or I have other passive income and I don't need to pull money out of the portfolio and I'm really in good shape and I can really withstand it, I'm okay with that. I think the fear is that we have short memories. Not this second, because I think it was just happened two years ago, so it's not so short. But, you know, it was fascinating for me. I was a money manager when the financial crisis hit. And, you know, I was a very wimpy money manager. And so I think that clients did pretty well, relatively speaking, but they still freaked out. And then all those years of bull markets made people kind of forget how freaked out they got. So, you know, maybe what I would say to people who are older and retiring is think, how did you feel for those five weeks where the S&P 500 lost a third of its value? If that happened right this second, would it like, absolutely make you nuts? Uh, Would it cause you to feel like you had to do something? And then maybe try to temper yourself. But, you know, retirement's a long time. It's a long time for a lot of people. And the people that I hear from, they're not retiring at their late 50s and their early 60s. They're not doing like, it's not the fire move. I mean, the fire movement of my generation that I feel like I speak to when I talk to the people who listen to our podcast and radio show we've adapted it. No one's talking about retire early. They're talking about financial independence, new endeavor or next endeavor. They want to be in a position where they're totally willing to work from age 55 to 70. They don't want to do what they're doing. And so if you need to draw money down from your portfolio to help you with that next or new endeavor, if you need to pull money out of a portfolio to support you doing, you know, whatever your dream job is next, then you may want to consider pulling back the risk. But, you know, honest to God, I am like misbalanced investor. It's my Achilles heel. I should be much richer right now, except I don't like risk. So in addition to maybe recalibrating their exposure to risky assets, are there other risks that you think new retirees ought to be attentive to as they're entering retirement, which many, many people are. We've seen a wave of people retiring in recent years, and that's likely to continue just for demographic reasons. But I think the pandemic has probably accelerated some of those trends. So what, apart from recalibrating sort of exposure to risky assets or other risks that you think they ought to focus on? I'm sure you're in this situation often where you're with a friend and you start talking about someone who you know who's died young. 
right? And you're like, oh my God, that, that friend, she, I can't believe she died. She's 50 years old. I'll tell you what, when I'm retired, I'm not going to wait around to do stuff. I'm going to do it all. Like you never know what could happen next, which is true, okay? However, the big mistake that I think people don't recognize in retirement is they spend way too much money early in their retirement. That to me is a huge risk because you're no longer earning income. And so, you know, when I talk to folks and I'm trying to give them advice, I say, okay, how much money do you need to spend? Well, I need to spend $80,000 a year in retirement. I'm like, great, that works. But we'd really like to take like two great huge trips every year. Okay, how much is that? Another 50. Oh, wait a minute. 80 to 130 is a very different number, right? And I think what I had seen is the desire for people to sort of justify their decisions by saying, you never know what can happen. And I get to be the total Debbie Downer, which, you know, I call myself the dream crusher sometimes. <laughs> and I say, yeah, I mean, it's terrible. But, you know, and then I, and, and I say, well, yeah, okay, it is true. You don't know what's going to happen. But what is the other way? I, I got a 98-year-old mother-in-law, 98, okay? You don't know how long you're going to live. And I'll tell you what, you soak up all that money in the first 10 years, let's call it from 60 to 70, live in large, you could live another 20 years. And it's sort of a similar conversation that I have with people about just helping their own kids out or, you know, paying for a college education you can't really afford. I said, imagine if you're 80 and you got to ask your kids for help. That's happening a lot now. So, you know, one of the best ways to make sure that your money lasts is to delay social security filing, especially if you think you're going to live a really long time. So, People really hate being told that they should do that. I don't know if you find that, but they do <laughs> totally. in my experience. Um, so how, how should pre-retirees approach this decision about when to claim Social Security? Do you have any resources that you like to recommend or should everyone oh, delay? God. How should people get into this decision? Honestly, I had this fight with my father. So I just, it's, it's very funny. You know, so my dad was a little bit of a math head, so he's dead now. But, you know, he was a trader most of his life. And, you know, that's a job that you don't really get to work as long as you want. You sort of age out pretty quickly. And, you know, he wasn't a trader at the kind that makes gazillion dollars a year. He was a journeyman. You know, he was a guy who uh, he went, he traded because he wanted to go to all of our games. You know, I want to control over my schedule, basically. And, um, you know, he lived a good life and he had fun and we had a great, you know, upper class life outside of New York. It was awesome, right? Um, but what was interesting I think, is that, you know, as he got to be 62, he had had some health issues. And so I said to him, you know, maybe you should delay Social Security because here I am, a certified financial planner. Like, I, I run the numbers. He's like, how long do I have to live to get the most? Like, tell me what's the number? Because that's the old joke, right? You tell me when you're going to die and I'll tell you when to claim, <laughs> right? So it is interesting that, you know, obviously you can claim as early as 62. Annual benefit is higher for every year you wait until 70. So like, that's the boring thing that we say, but people are like, but I want the money now. And so it's this weird delayed gratification thing. My father claimed early and he died at 76. Now, it was probably a terrible decision anyway, because I really just wanted him to wait to full retirement age because my mother was going to claim on half of his record. But he kind of wanted none of that. And he basically was like so arrogant. He's like, well, I can beat that 8% return. I'm like, can you? I bet not. You know, and and so it was, I must say, like the gal's humor when he knew he was definitely going downhill. I said, I guess you were right claiming it's 62, dad. You're right, huh? And he goes, yeah, I wish I wasn't right about that one. But, you know, it's just, it's a very hard thing because I believe the social security system is so complex and all these claiming strategies are so complex, my God. And um, it, it's very difficult. So, you know, not to toot anyone's horns, you know, um, you guys are familiar with Mark Miller. He just wrote a beautiful article in the Times about, you know, great software for social security. But, you know, an easy place to start is ssa.gov and, you know, you create your account and there's an estimator there. But if you have a complex situation to pay 50 or 80 bucks for a one-time fee to get some software, that would be great. And if you're working with a real financial planner, that should be folded into the services they provide. They should be helping you. 
working longer, say past the age of 65, has a lot of financial benefits. And there may be physical, mental health, and social benefits too, but ageism is also a force to be reckoned with. And other issues can get in the way of someone's stated desire to work longer, for instance, their health. Do you have any advice for older adults who want to continue working longer? And you guys are so funny because like, I, this is like, like my hot button issue. So you've <laughs> just glommed onto it. Uh, so if you listen to my show, so I'm 56. And when someone my age calls up and talks about retirement, I'm like, what are you going to do with your life? Like, and I get very angry about this. Just like I really have great transference around this because I don't know what I would do with myself and I really love what I do. And hello, I'm a, a white collar, knowledge-based worker who can do, you know, 75% of my job from home. 25% of the time I go into a studio and they do my hair and makeup. Not exactly the hardest life in the world. So, you know, I think one of the things that I'm watching in this current labor market is how do the older cohort, what did they decide to do? You're right. There is great evidence that a lot of people who were over 55 left the labor force, but not all of them said, I'm done for good. So I'm interested in seeing if people who, like, if we always think of sort of the young gig worker as the under 35, I'm kind of excited to see whether that starts more for the over 55 and that people can talk to their, if they're employed, uh, I think a great thing to do is to talk to a boss and say, you know, you don't want to pay my full freight anymore and I don't really need it. I really need benefits for another 10 years. But how about if I go as a part-timer and here's what I think we should do. I think that there are more companies and employers who are willing to try to figure out how to retain these people who are really valuable. They have all the institutional knowledge, but maybe not a full freight. And so I do think that, yes, there is ageism, but, you know, thankfully in a tight labor market, that has gone out the window. It's like, you know, some of the old tropes that I always laughed at in other times where things were tight, like I remember after the Great Recession, oh, there's a skills mismatch. Remember that one? Oh, there's a skills mismatch. People don't have the skills we need. And I'm like, you know what? Why don't you pay them and why don't you train them? <laughs> and then they'll have the skills you need. Amazing. And what we're seeing in this current environment where workers have leverage for the first time ever is that they are learning that they can use it. And I think for older workers, this is going to be awesome. I think that people have to be a little more creative. And look, just because I like what I do all the time doesn't mean I want to do it as much. I don't love waking up at four o'clock in the morning, five days a week. And, you know, so that's not great. But, you know, I could see doing this a long time and, you know, doing certain aspects of my job for a really long time. And I think about it, maybe the part of this that's really important to, to pound home is you want to be thoughtful about these issues and be proactive so that, you know, maybe your boss isn't the most creative person in the world. Maybe you can be the one who says, I have this idea. What do you think? And I think that that's a, a great way to arm yourself and think about what you really want. You know, it's like I'm scared when people are like, you know, oh, I'm, I'm going to go move near my kids so I can be close to the grandkids. And then the grandkids are teenagers and they don't want anything to do with anyone. <laughs> So you referenced the fact that we've got this tight labor market. Workers have a ton of leverage. And I thought that was a great discussion of what older adults could do to be creative about sort of their next steps. How about for younger workers? What sorts of things should they be asking their employers for at this juncture to take advantage of the fact that they're really holding the cards right now? You know, it's so funny because I think part of this really is hard for a younger person because you don't have the confidence to say, you know, well, inflation's running at 7% and I know I deserve more. And there are certain industries that are already, you know, paying that. But I think what's important to remember is that, you know, you have to determine what you want. And when you're younger, sometimes you don't know, right? Uh, I think that the COVID era has accelerated the ideas of what we think we want, right? So if it's more money, that's easy to ask for. Is it more flexibility? you know, I want to be able to work from home this many days a week. Or is it, I'm a parent and I want to go to a four-day work week. Or, you know, I know I couldn't go anywhere and maybe you can't give me a 7% raise, but how about a 4% raise and another five days of vacation? So I think that you have to have constructive conversations with your bosses. And 
it's funny to me that, you know, a lot of people just don't want to leave where they are, but there is so much research that leaving pays off, right? You get a better bump in pay if you leave, but maybe that doesn't matter to you. Maybe if you have the ability to craft a work life that is better for you and your family, you don't need as much money and you could be happy or maybe you can thrive. So I think it's having these conversations. Every boss, every company totally understands what's at risk right now. And so I think it's just having the courage to do it, doing your research and knowing what you want. You mentioned that Roth conversions and paying down a mortgage are two of the more popular categories of questions that you get from consumers. What are some of the other biggies that you get most often from consumers that you hear from? You know, look, I have a weird listening audience because I have three shows, right? I have Jill on Money, the podcast. I have Jill on Money, the two-hour syndicated radio show for CBS. And then I have a Viacom CBS product called Eye on Money. And you know, each audience is slightly different. I think that most of the questions that I get are simply, am I on the right track? I'm a little bit nervous. I work with a broker or an advisor, and I'm not sure this is the right thing for me. Uh, Should I make this move? You know, I inherited a home. We're living it and it's great. My friend told me that I should get a mortgage and invest. Should I do that? It's almost like they want to come to Aunt Jill and say, what do you think? Is this okay? They want another set of ears and eyes on a situation. And, you know, I'm lucky enough, I have an executive producer who's also a certified financial planner. So he got that designation after meeting me. And, you know, it's like a check-in. And, you know, I had this show for a long time. I've been doing the radio show for 11 years and it's really changed. Like, it's, it's interesting to me that people really are much more focused on what they can do to take control of their lives. They were much more willing to cede control to, you know, the big wirehouse broker. I think now with more options, with cheaper options, and I feel like people get the idea that, you know, this investing thing, I know it's important, but it's all the other stuff too. And they need help on the other stuff. And there's just not enough affordable help on the other stuff for them out there. So they come back to me and they just want to know, what do you think? So speaking of getting advice, um, you're the senior CFP board ambassador and you have the CFP credentials. So I guess, what are the signs that someone needs help from a professional financial advisor and shouldn't go the DIY route? Do you have any tips on like how to know and also just how to find qualified advice? Because it almost seems like you actually need to know quite a lot to find a Mm. good financial advisor. So let me just correct something that you said, which is I was the former ambassador. So Uh, I I no longer hold that title. Um, You know, I think there are lots of different kinds of people who need financial help. Okay. And if you are just looking for the investment of money, like I, you know, you worked at GE for 10 years and there's $80,000 in your 401k and you don't know what to do with it. You rolled it over to an IRA rollover. And now you're going to go, I I want someone to manage that. You don't need that. That's not worth paying for, okay? Because you can go to any kind of investment platform like a Vanguard or, you know, a robo-advisor or a Schwab platform, and you can get that done automatically for you. So there's plenty of options that are really affordable. I think the people who tend to need help are people who have complicated lives, And the complications are such that it takes a lot to really focus on what you need to do. So those are folks who might really benefit from working with a certified financial planner or fiduciary. And those are people who should be looking around and trying to determine what is it I need help doing? Do I need a big financial plan? Should I go to the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, which is napfa.org, and find, like, what is it that you're seeking? Are you seeking someone to do a plan? If you want a plan only, there are types of advisors called fee-only planners. They will do a plan. They sometimes do it by the hour. They sometimes do a flat fee. And they're often folks who don't take any commissions for products. So that's the kind of advisor you would find at NAPFA. 
You know, if you want to go to get a CFP, there is letsmakeaplan.org and you can type in your zip code and you can talk to people. But there are a lot of resources where you can get some advice along with money management. And, you know, that's why Vanguard and Schwab and uh, Betterment and these companies that are really gathering assets first added financial advice because they realized people needed financial advice. The thing is about the industry, it hasn't quite cracked the nut on how to provide advice to people who don't have a lot of money. And it's starting. I think there's some great resources out there. There's a company called Facet Wealth. There's XY Planning. There really are good folks out there, but it hasn't developed. And you'll know when things are really developing in a more robust way when you start to hear that Robinhood is going to provide advice. I'm just kidding. They're not going to do it. <laughs> what about paying for advice? You've you've already alluded to some of the different ways in which advice can be paid for. Do you have a view on what's the best way for consumers to pay for advice? And you know, if the answer is it depends, in your view, what does it depend on? I am somewhat fee agnostic, I must say. Um, I think it's clean to have a flat fee, but people don't like it. <laughs> and that comes from experience. When I was a financial advisor and a money manager, we actually tried to do this. We tried to do a flat fee pricing model. It was probably too early in the cycle because, you know, now it's probably 15 years ago. But it's tough for people to write checks. Now, I think it's a little bit better now. I do think that we have a generation of people that's used to paying monthly subscriptions all over the place. So I think it's going to develop and become easier. But I think in general, you know, this standard model of it costs X percent of the money that I manage is a model that's going to die eventually. It's not going to die yet. But that's a very classic model of how mo many financial planners, certified financial planners charge. So Christine comes to me. She's got a million dollars in her retirement account. She needs financial planning. And now, I, I mean, I can say to you, well, well you know, you can pay us $10,000 a year. We'll just take 1% from your portfolio. And you know what's crazy? Like people know the math, but they do like it. It's like, oh, just pull it from the portfolio. What people are not so good at recognizing is that it's often more than that 1%. That it's, you know, sometimes it's 1.2%. And if it's less than a million dollars, it could be more like 2%. And there could be cost of funds that are inside the account that no one's really accounting for. So I think that as much as possible, you should have a relationship with someone where you feel very comfortable walking into the office and saying, okay, I would like a relationship with you, Ms. Advisor. Tell me exactly how you get paid. And there should be no hemming and hawing. Well, here's the cost. It's, you know, a flat fee of this or it's this percentage of your portfolio. And by the way, for that, this is what we provide. Oh, and one follow-up question is, well, what about the cost of the funds that are inside of this account? Is that incorporated? No, that's extra. It's an extra blank percent. But you've got to be armed with some information. Most, I think most advisors really do want to disclose everything. It's just that they don't do it in a way that the potential client really gets it. And so I'm still often surprised that there are people who contact us and really don't know how they're paying for the services that they are getting. So that's a concern. I guess it's weird. People still have some sort of embarrassment around it. Like there's a, a confrontation almost that maybe is sort of hanging over them and they feel, I kind of wish I knew that. I sort of remember, but I don't know. It's okay. You're allowed to ask. It's your money. You know, you're not going to a restaurant. You either have the price fix menu and you know what that is, or each item is itemized and you know what it costs. It's impossible for people to feel comfortable about their decisions without understanding the cost of the services that they're paying for. Right. You know, I wanted to ask about spending. We know that Americans historically have been kind of challenged on the savings front, but we've had author Ramit Sethi on the podcast a few times, and he made the point to us that the financial services industry is so focused on getting people to save, and sometimes that is to the detriment of, you know, them sort of living their best lives. So do you have any tips on, like, how people can balance those two really important goals, so like living your best life and saving for the future? Absolutely. I mean, I completely agree with that. I think the idea of 
scarcity is not a wonderful one. And I'm not a big fan of diets, even though I'm a lifetime member of Weight Watchers from 100 years ago. Um, I think that the way to do this is to make sure you have a plan that is reasonable, that accounts for what your real life is. It's not a great thing for people to live their whole lives. Save, 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 save. I mean, it's fine if that's how you're built. You know, you should factor in, like, what do you want to do? Like, you shouldn't be miserly either. So I think that in many ways, having a plan can be a relief because I can say to somebody, well, you know, based on these numbers, you can be spending this. Don't worry. It's okay. And you don't have to do that. You know, we had a woman who just called into the show and she had talked about wanting to take a gap year. She was just fried. And we were talking through all the numbers and everything. And then she called us back because she said, you're not going to believe this, but like I had a cancer diagnosis and it was terrible. She's like 40 something years old. She's very young. And she said, uh, I really like, I want to now like blow it out. Like I want to do something really great for like a year. I said, great, let's do it. Like, who am I to say, you just had this horrible experience. Let's figure out how to do it. So I think that, you know, you owe it to yourself to be able to do the plan that incorporates the life you want to live, you know, and you can't be dopey about it. You know, oh, I want to, you know, I want to spend $900,000 a year, but I make $100,000 a year. It's not going to work, right? So it has to be reasonable. And there are trade-offs for everything, right? I find that one of the more painful conversations I have with people is their continued support for their adult children. Hmm. It's just First of all, I don't have children. So, I, you know, of course, I'm an expert. <laughs> My next book, The Non-Parent's Guide to Parenting. Um, you know, so I find it hard because obviously I understand. I'm an aunt many times over. And I understand that there is a desire to help kids. What I don't understand is the number of people who do two things really wrong. One is they infantilize their adult children. And the other is they put themselves at risk. Those two things freak me out. And so, you know, if you tell me I can do all the things I want to do, oh, except I have to give my kid $25,000 a year because my grandkid has to go to camp. Well, you know, you give that money, that 25 grand every year for the next seven years, it kind of blows up some of your plans. So tell me what's going to give. What's another aspect of financial planning you think we're not talking enough about? I love death. You know that. You already had to, you know me now for 54 minutes. Um, <laughs> illness and death. Life insurance. Um, shocking number of people who just have such terrible insurance policies. Just awful. Just like buy term life insurance. Stop. The industry is so insane. Like if you consider, like really, let's talk about the use case for whole life or permanent insurance, right? What percentage of people out there do we really believe should be buying permanent insurance, that they need life insurance in place for their whole lives? What percentage would you guys guess? Uh, I'm afraid to. I w pretty low, right? If people don't have dependents at a certain point, that it seems less necessary. Right. Who would need life insurance for their whole life? Somebody who's got a special needs kid, you, gotta, you have to have a special needs trust funded. Okay. Right. That's one group. Um, rich people who have estate issues and business people who need buy-sell agreements. Okay. I, I got to believe that's maybe 2% of the United States population. So you tell me how all of these products are justified. It's like a cartel. <laughs> this is how I'm never going to get an insurance company <laughs> to, to get my show in their rotation. It, it really is. It's insanity to me. So I think insurance is very misunderstood. I think it's oversold. No one goes out and says, I want to, no one wakes up in the morning. Oh, you know what I really want to do? I want to buy a variable universal life insurance policy. No one wakes up that way. No one. So I think it is an industry that's gotten so aggressive. It has so much power. It has so much lobbying. It's crazy. And then, of course, I cannot believe that I just, I beg people every single day to do estate planning every day. And, you know, it's funny, like before COVID, I would say, you know, you need this, 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 and this. And people, you know, whatever, roll their eyes at me. They don't do it quite as seriously as they used to. I think that it was interesting to see that a lot of people were like, wow, 
bad things can happen at any time. They can happen when you're 20. They can happen when you're 50. Estate planning is not about money. To me, the whole idea of estate planning is like, if we just focused, instead of saying a will, if we just said, who's going to be your healthcare proxy, we'd get everybody to do, hmm. to do the main three documents, the will, the healthcare proxy, and the power of attorney. We would. And we've just gotten a crash course in how important that is. So that's the one so unsexy. Oh my God. Can you imagine? You guys are going to like, well, what's the, what's the beta of that fun? And I'm like, what about your will? I'd rather listen to you also. Well, on that unsexy note, Jill, thank you so much for this illuminating conversation. We've loved having you here today. Well, thanks for having me. And I really appreciate it. It's a lot of fun. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us on The Lawn View. If you could, please take a moment to subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz. And at S-Youth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one. George Cassidy is our engineer for the podcast, and Carrie Gretchik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analyses, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decisions.